So, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It is a great pleasure and an honor to moderate the analyst uh, roundtable today. Um, I am joined today by Chris Weatherby, Managing Director of Transportation and Shipping Research at City, Omar Nocta, Lead Shipping Researcher at Jefferies, Ben Nolan, Head of Maritime Research at Stifel, Frode Morkedal, Managing Director, Equity Research at Clarkson's, and Tate Sullivan, Managing Director and senior industrial analyst at Maxim Group. So the majority of these gentlemen have been doing this uh, for a while, and maybe until a couple of years ago, uh, it might have felt quite lonely and unrewarding. But uh, what a difference the last couple of years made. The container market saw an unprecedented high on the back of the demand and supply disruption caused by COVID. The Russian-Ukraine war distorted the tanker market, and we are now experiencing one of the best tanker markets ever, after one of the worst markets uh, ever. Uh, finally, the dry bulk market is staging a comeback after a very good market uh, in 2021 and partly 2022. And LNG two-stroke vessels are being fixed for six-digit figures for a long-term period. And all this in an inflationary environment with above cyclical averages in terms of asset valuations, and a very high degree of uncertainty across all fronts, including the capital markets and financial institutions as of late. So uh, does, it, does it feel like this patience has um, paid off? Is this a new shipping uh, super cycle? And uh, what would be your top sector picks in this environment? Um, and which companies are best positioned to profit in these segments? So maybe uh, all panelists can um, give a shot at this answer. Great. Maybe I'll go first, and I'll be relatively brief. So from our perspective, you know, we certainly continue to be fairly constructive on the tanker space, obviously looking at where rates are and, and the cash flow opportunities that we see for some of the companies there. Um, and as you noted, dry bulk is showing some signs of life, and with China reopening, we do think that there's an opportunity there. Certainly less constructive on the container side, just given the you know, sort of over-earning uh, that occurred during the pandemic and, and where we see, you know, box rates ultimately leading container rates on the charter side in the not-too-distant future. So I think that's kind of generally the way that we're positioned. We're not currently doing much in LNG for, for multiple reasons, so let the other panelists comment on that. But that's sort of our general stance. And then, you know, I don't know if I necessarily would go so far as to say it's a, the beginning of a new super cycle. Um, it certainly would be great if it is, but, you know, we're trying to be a bit more tactical and sort of find some interesting opportunities within that that we can see. So that's the way that we're thinking about it at City. Thank you, Chris. Frode? Well, um, we like tankers and dry bulk. That's our top sector. Um, I've been very positive for tankers for two years now. Um, but still, I think tankers are looking very strong. Uh, and it's all about the order book. I mean, if you look, there's no VLCCs coming next year. Um, just one in 2025, right? So think about it. If there's no fleet growth, um, the only way to increase supply of ships is to go faster. At the same time, you have new regulations, right? That uh, basically 70% of the fleet is non-eco and can, can hardly speed up. So that means that uh, freight rates have to go significantly higher in order to induce people to speed up. So when I look around, people don't seem to be willing to take uh, a bet on next year uh, 
yet, right? So I think there's a lot of upside potentially, yeah. Thank you, Frode. Um, Omar, what's your take? Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, I would say uh, Frode and myself, we were very bullish together for uh, <laughs> for two years on tankers. But no, I don't disagree with, with Frode or Christian. We're very positive on tankers, obviously. I think it's life-changing cash flow uh, for, for the sector, and it's, it's one where we're seeing what happens when you go uh, several years out investing, and, and now we're We've got an ex exceptionally tight market, but I, I would say the containers are actually becoming, in my opinion, quite interesting. It's very easy for us to look at the order book and think, wow, this sector is done for a long time. But this is one of the, I would say, very rare times in history where a downturn has come and people have foreseen it coming. Uh, usually downturns come in cyclical industries and definitely in shipping, they come unexpectedly. And we're all surprised and companies are, are stuck with uh, stretched balance sheets. But here, when we look at the container sector, Liners across the board uh, are flush with cash. Their leverage ratios are very low, historically low. You have the ship owners themselves who are also uh, well-prepared. They've got deep backlogs, strong balance sheets. And so they're going into this downturn very well-prepared. And so I feel that there's actually a better future for containers than we currently think when we just simply look at freight rates, time charter rates, and the size of the order book. I think when you have companies that participate in a sector who are very strong financially, it's a much better uh, outlook than, uh, than the other way around. Yeah. Thank you, Omar. Very interesting. And we have seen a bit of an uptick as of late in charter rates as well in containers. Um, what about you, Ben? Well, that's a, that's a brave call, Omar. I like that. <laughs> Out of consensus for sure, uh, which is the problem, I think. Um, I, I absolutely agree with... The tankers, um, to a lesser extent, the dry bulk, but generally same place. Uh, and it feels more obvious now than any of the last 20 years that I've been trying to do this, um, which makes me really nervous um, when it seems like it's too obvious. But I can't poke holes in it right now. And, and really, in tankers, I can't poke holes in it. So uh, so that's that's it. Uh, the only other thing, and I was talking to David a little bit ago, the... the uh, it's tangential to me, but if I if I just was trying to say something different, uh, probably offshore. Uh, there's there's been a lot more underinvestment in that than there has been really in any of these other segments for a long time, and we just have not broken away from our oil appetite as a uh, as a globe yet. So that they they probably fell harder and can rise faster. That rigs. Anything, anything offshore. Thank you, Ben. And what about you, Tate? Uh, th thanks. And framing the discussion in light of what's been going on in the entire markets in the last couple of weeks and just the nervousness from, from what we've seen in the banks. And I mean, I was, I was debating, does that make me less positive on the dry bulk in any way? But the counter to that is, should China throw out much more stimulus and actually have much more demand coming in terms of pent-up inventory demand for iron ore? And so I, I, at the end of the day, continue to recommend favor the dry bulk sector compared to many more. And then another sector that if you look at risks related to any nervousness around GDP outlooks for Europe, for the U.S., uh, recommend the liquefied petroleum gas sector, LPG. It was a great panel a little earlier today, but LPG in terms of being resilient, in terms of baseline demand for heating and sort of fuel for heating and cooking, uh, recommend dry bulk and liquefied petroleum gas as well. Thank you. So in all these key shipping segments, uh, when you look at asset prices, they're above historical averages, um, 
market expectations, inflationary pressures, competition for shipyard space, and other factors have been putting upward pressure uh, on asset values, uh, be it new builds or uh, secondhand. So how should companies think about fleet renewal in this environment? And what is your opinion on the optimal capital allocation policy between dividends, buybacks, and growth? Um, maybe, Omar, we start with you. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, yeah, and, uh, obviously, the main probably point of conversation we have with investors and with the companies is how do you allocate capital? Uh, how do you use it uh, in, in this market? Uh, it, it feels that um, a lot of the companies today versus, say, 20 years ago when they were much smaller, uh, the, the, there was a need back then to maybe grow and expand and, and, and constantly deploy capital in a way where you're trying to add more ships on a net basis. And here, there, most of the public companies, I would say, have a, enough critical mass where there doesn't need to be this constant view on growth. So I think harvesting the cash, uh, you know, repaying shareholders, I don't think you necessarily have to pay out some massive number. I think shareholders like the idea of receiving a dividend more than anything because it makes them feel secure that there's an eye on capital returns as opposed to just outright uh, acquiring assets. So I think in, in that context, uh, harvesting cash, uh, making sure your balance sheet's in, in good shape, but then also renewing the fleet, I think, is very important in doing that on a constant basis of selling older ships and taking the proceeds and investing in newer ones and just doing that on a dynamic basis. Is, is there a preferred approach, ratio? How, how would you tackle that? Because, you know, you cannot do everything at the, uh, right at the same time, and that's a bit of the problem, right? And uh, let's say, do you allocate money for growth um, given where asset prices are, or do you simply say, well, let me, let me hold back at this point? No, I'd say probably looking to, uh, I wouldn't want to allocate uh, capital to growth today. Uh, I would rather just do it to allocate capital towards renewing the fleet. So I would look to sell my older vessels, buy newer ones, just so I'm prepared for the, um, you know, the regulations that become more stringent. Okay, Frode, what's your take? <coughs> well, uh, I think um, capital allocation, you need to see, well, there's two factors to consider. Where, where are we in the cycle, right? So. At the bottom of the cycle, you'll probably invest rather than at the top of the cycle, right? Um, secondly, price to NAV matters. If you're trading below NAV, that's, you know, the textbook says you should usually buy back stock. Um, if you're trading above NAV, it's probably better to dividend, right? Um, but it's, um, you know, buyback, you know, could work uh, if, if you have liquidity. So, of course, market cap and liquidity is important to consider whether you should buy back stock or dividend out. So, it could work. I mean, one example uh, come to mind is um, Torm and Scorpio, right? Both stocks went up more or less 300% last year. One company like Torm dividended out everything and Scorpio basically bought back stock, right? So it could work uh, either way, you get paid, like the total return were the same, right? Um, but of course, uh, if you look at today's prices, Torm is trading with a premium to NAV, so and that has helped. And they just announced a deal last week, which was quite interesting. They bought uh, three MRs um, with 50% uh, in stock, so ship per share deal, 
And since they were trading above NV, uh, that is immediately accretive, right? So NV also matters. So, so there seems to be some, some consensus that maybe this is not the right time to, to be deploying that uh, equity back into the market and um, uh, unit buybacks, dividends, uh, is more the way, the, the way to go. Um, now, uh, looking at the um, LNG sector, um, it's an LNG, L the LNG sector has strong fundamentals um, according to the general consensus. Uh, there is investor interest. Uh, but the universe of uh, companies to choose from is quite small, especially with young latest generation fleets. So one uh, would expect more companies to go public. We have uh, recently also uh, Coolco migrating to, um, or at least partly migrating to the New York uh, Stock Exchange. Um, but we have seen also a number of LNG companies going private. Um, so what's your take on this? Do you expect to see more of the more of this trend in shipping in general, or is it more particular to the LNG sector? Uh, ben, maybe we'll start with you. I know that you have um, had the very strong opinions about uh, this matter in the past. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm paid for my opinions, so I try to make them strong. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I think as much as anything else, and Jerry, you can probably appreciate this more than most, uh, what we've seen, um, in the uh, take private transactions, with the exception of Gaslog Limited, unless I'm forgetting one, is they were all MLPs. And I, I think structurally that was a challenge. And, um, uh, and so the, it, it, it just, it, you know, it lent itself to, um, to maybe valuations being struggling to get back to what is a more reasonable level. And in many cases, if, if there are structural reasons that stocks trade like that, going private is a valid way of, uh, of thinking about it. Uh, what I would say, though, is what differentiates the LNG segment still relative to tankers or dry bulk or whatever is that um, you can still get really long-term cash flows in the LNG space. And infrastructure funds, which by and large, who has been buying these, are, are not making spot plays. So you, you have to have that long duration cash flow or the ability to at least get it. Um, and so I don't, maybe, maybe, and, and we sort of have seen with the container side Atlas, so maybe the container side would be another case where, where the, the, the duration of the cash flows matches up. But I don't think broadly speaking, there's a, there's a big wave of privatization necessarily. It's, it's going to be a little bit more relegated to those those segments, and then again, I, I think the MLP side of it was clearly there's a migration away from that capital structure. Uh, thank you, Ben. Chris, would you would you agree with this approach? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would. I mean, maybe first I'll go back really quick to the capital allocation question, if you if you'll permit me, and, and I do think. Of course, first and foremost, this is shipping, so we want to make sure that companies are managing their balance sheets appropriately and paying down debt where they can. I mean, this is the time of the cycle where we want to see people aggressively doing that so we can be in a better position, potentially with lower asset rates, to go the other way and, and lever up to try to generate better returns on the up cycle. So that's certainly something that we'd be looking for as well. And then in terms of the go private, yeah, I think Ben's right. I mean, you know, it, it's duration.
generation of cash flow and its predictability, and I think that's the reason why you're going to see private capital come in and be able to sort of withstand the degree of leverage needed for those types of transactions. I don't know if it necessarily lends itself to stuff that is, is closer to spot or shorter in duration like you see with some of the other subsectors. So, you know, certainly an interesting wave. We've seen a lot of activity in there. Um, cost of capital is also going up in a pretty aggressive fashion over the course of the last year, so that probably also plays into to keeping these maybe a little bit less likely moving forward. Okay, well, thank you, Chris. Sure. Um, so now pivoting a bit to the um, regulatory side of things. Um, we have seen uh, the regulatory framework around the carbon footprint of shipping becoming an important aspect of the market on its own right. Uh, many of these regulations come to force uh, as we speak, EXI translating into incremental capex for older vessels, uh, CII uh, will start differentiating between vessels and trades with different carbon footprints, um, ETS uh, is uh, coming into force uh, and will be the first market-based measure um, from 2024 um, uh, that will have teeth. Um, uh, when it comes to trades associated with uh, the European Union uh, and uh, will um, effectively force commercial operators to buy credits for carbon emissions. So how do you expect companies to be affected by this and especially public companies? Who will be the winners and losers? Um, what are the attributes you would be looking for in a company in order to be well positioned uh, in this decar decarbonization phase? Um, uh, Tate, uh, let's uh, start with you. Sure. Uh, with the regulatory backdrop and, and, in fact, some pressure from customers, the shipping companies already, to have newer fleets that are more fuel efficient, I, I think our job, part of our jobs as analysts is to identify companies that are being more aggressive in terms of fleet renewal strategies. And, and I really, I, I don't think sympathize is right. Well, sympathize, I think, is the right word in terms of the, it's very, it must be a very tough balance as a shipping company. You have to renew the fleet to satisfy your customers and then also reward your shareholders at the same time to, to generate interest in your equity. So that, that balance is probably going to get harder in my perspective going forward um, because fleets will have to become, um, you will, companies will have to get rid of older ships. And so the winners will be the companies that are more proactive. Uh, in fact, in the dry bulk, in my view, in the dry bulk sector, it was interesting in the panel today that I mean, there's no economic incentive to place new build orders today, but when where will there be and when will the regulatory backdrop provide enough of an incentive to, to place new build orders for dry bulk ships to renew the fleet? So the winners, I think, for, with the regulatory backdrop, with customers demanding newer ships because they are more fuel efficient, will be those, those shipping operators more aggressively renewing the fleets. Mm, I'll take the other side of that trade. Uh, I, I, I think... I think the reality is that uh, right now you, you can't, just because you have money uh, and just because uh, you have aging assets doesn't mean that you're, um, you're immune to residual value risk. And right now, uh, yeah, it's, it's fine to replace some of your older assets, but if you're going to order new ships, and generally speaking, if you're going to buy new ships, you're going to be taking a lot of residual value risk. Uh, and and uh, that is uh, usually not a good recipe for success in the long run in shipping. And in terms of just the winners and losers in the cycle, in terms of the regulatory backdrop and being more fuel-fit, fuel I, I mean, I mentioned liquefied petroleum gas earlier. I mean, the... the 
ship, ships that actually can have dual engines or will be the early winners in the, in the cycle to become more fuel, fuel efficient and LNG. Thank you, Omar. Do you have another take or no, how would you tackle that? Yeah, um, I, I'm kind of wondering, Ben, I, I sort of maybe try to take the opposite side of you. Good. Uh, uh, more fun that way. No, I mean, if there's 10,000 ships and you've just ordered one, I, I understand the obsolescence fear of buying the, you know, the, the one ship that, okay, it's, it's no longer needed. But if we've seen from, re from the regulations that, it, it, look, anything can change, but it doesn't seem that they're going to, if you've spent $100 million buying a ship, it's now obsolete on, on year three, right? It's still at the front of the line in terms of the best quality, the best you know, fuel efficiency. Um, so I think you shouldn't be afraid to order, not necessarily saying you should, but I don't think investing in new buildings is, is, is that bad of a, an idea from, from trying to make sure that your fleet is modern. Again, you've got 10,000 ships, they're all behind you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, right, again, it we're, depends on which segment we're talking about, but let's say we're talking about dry bulk or tankers where the order book is relatively low. Um, I, yeah, I, I, clearly the near-term fundamentals are fine and as long as things don't get too crazy from a macroeconomic standpoint. But the, I, I think the reality is if you're ordering a $100 million ship, which ordinarily would cost you $70 million in a in a normal market, you better be really sure that you can front-end load your economics. Um, and if somebody's willing to give you a time charter contract to cover those front-end economics, fine. But if not, I, you know, again, like I said, you, you, it could be great. It could be totally fine. but. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of risk, and, and I do think you have to think about these assets on an asset-by-asset asset basis, right? It, if you need to renew assets, that's fine, but you know, just, just because you're saying, okay, well, it's a small bet doesn't mean it's not a bet. But, but also framing before, too, I wasn't referring just to new build deliveries as well. I mean, more, more active in the S&P market in terms of buying newer ships and selling off older ships when you can. We've seen that, I think, if you look at most metrics for S&P activity today versus last year. And so even with the spinoffs that we've seen in the sector, this can help many companies may have younger fleets as well by generating other, other S&P activity in their sectors. I mean, that's got to be the nuance, right? I think that you hit it right on the head is if you're doing it for growth, that's one degree of a risk that you're taking. I think if you're doing it for fleet renewal, it's a different degree. So I think you guys all are kind of <laughs> on the same, same side of the argument, just in different parts of the spectrum there. I think if you're, if you're thinking about fleet renewal, the risk profile of investment today is, is maybe greater than it would have been five or 10 years ago, potentially, but certainly not you know, overwhelmingly so relative to if you're actually thinking, all right, we're going all in on a growth strategy related to some of this new, more speculative, potentially technology. But is that, is, that, uh, is that a function of where we are in the cycle, or is it more about risk of um, uh, new technologies? I think, Ben, you seem to be saying both things, right? I mean, um, uh, you're, you seem to be saying, well, we are at a point in the cycle where probably we are at levels that uh, th there is more residual risk going forward, but you, you were seem to be implying that the new build uh, might not be fit for purpose in um, uh, in a um, uh, couple of decades or so. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I wasn't trying to imply the second. Um, I, I do think, just like we've been talking about for years, that, uh, that the right answer on new builds uh, is to be determined, right? Sort of, uh, sort of like Lois said at lunch, that you, you can Google up what's the best diet and you're gonna get 100 different answers and none of them are probably right. So, um, 
I, 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 for me, it's more about, okay, well, this is a cyclical industry, and the people that make money in cyclical industries are the people who are counter-cyclical. So if we're in a period of strength, I'm a seller. If we're in a period of weakness, I'm a buyer, full stop. Yeah, I guess just kind of to add to that is, um, you know, we would, you mentioned years, right? We've been talking about this for years and years and years about the new regulation, and no one knows what the type of propulsion is that we're going to have in the future. What's going to win? Is it ammonia? You know, what, what, what are we doing? But it, it's easy for then companies to get flat-footed and do nothing, and then just watch their fleet age. And with each passing year, it's an older uh, fleet, and all of a sudden you get to at some point in the future, and you realize, oh my gosh, my fleet's much older than the average age of the global fleet. I'm I can't win long-term contracts. I, I have to slow steam drastically to not have the, the same emission problems. So it, it's, it's one thing where you're, you're, you have to invest. You have to continue to invest. I'm not saying grow, but you have to invest and, and modernize um, and prepare yourself. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, if you, if you look outside of shipping for other transportation at, uh, companies, when they think about what the future might be, they, they don't know if it's going to be electric trucks or if it's going to be some other hydrogen or something else. You often see people take sort of measured bets in various different technologies. It's more difficult in shipping because the asset may be $100 million as opposed to $100,000. And so I think that's what makes it a little bit more nuanced. But I think Omar's point's a very good one. You do have to continue to invest to continue to sort of push the ball forward. And we'll see ultimately what the right technology is. I don't think any of us really know right now. Yeah. yeah just, uh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, just real on the regulatory and, and making ships cleaner too is is. I mean, I look at it personally as positive when any shipping company announces any energy saving and related investment. I mean, could it be investing in, I mean, some sort of turbine generator on the, on the ship or any new propeller system to increase, increase the fuel efficiency of, the, of an older ship? And, and so I think the customers are looking for that kind of investment as well, too. And with a technology across the industrial sector, I'm sure we'll keep hearing of more and more new, um, cleaner and more efficient ways to increase fuel efficiency. Uh, if I can add, um, I think when you're going to invest in new builds, you have to look at what's the implied day rate you need. So, for example, if you order a cape size at, uh, let's call it 60 million, um, historically you had like 11, 12% return, and that equates to 26,000 per day. So, unless you believe in that type of rate or higher, you won't invest, right? So the same example on VLCCs, it's, uh, the implied day rate is 50,000 per day. So that has to be part of the decision and, making. And you've got the interest rate now that's going against you. So is 50 the right number? Is it 60? Right. Sure. Uh, last question on this point, which um, I think is, is very interesting. Um, this, is all, this is all good, and I think it until now, uh, this is the way that uh, investors as well as companies approach it. I mean, yes, I have to renew my fleet if I'm delivering energy savings. Uh, it's good uh, because then I can uh, potentially get a higher rate. But it does, it does seem to me that um, we are now stepping um, into a new era, the era of market-based measures. So where a new build uh, that will deliver uh, substantially less in terms of uh, carbon footprint, will actually be able to earn that, in addition to whatever energy savings it will, it will bring. So I guess the question is, do you, do you see companies preparing for that? Um, are, are people actually thinking about uh, their uh, carbon footprint in a way that um, they will be able to monetize it? Or is it an, until now more of an approach, uh, well, it's good to renew my fleet, 
uh, it's a good to have think uh, more of an ESG type of approach, uh, but not really thinking about what it, this means uh, financially. I'll go. Any, any of you guys? Yeah, uh, I, I think you, you saw it in Scarbers. I think in general, there's a few exceptions, but in general, ship owners, like the rest of us, are uh, motivated by greed or fear. And so while we, you know, it, it is maybe great for the environment to take a risk, pay some money for something that might reduce your emissions, and maybe at some point you'll get paid for it, you're probably in a better position to say than me, but I haven't seen a lot of people willing to take that risk unless there is a clear, at least at least opportunity to make some return on the investment. Uh, I mean, it's the nature of a commoditized market, right? It, it, you're, uh, you're, you're generally not rewarded to be, a, to be a first mover. Thank you, Ben. So let's um, uh, now pivot to uh, the investor base of, um, of public companies. So to what is that investor base uh, today? Um, how important is the retail element? Um, who is a typical shipping investor today? Who is, who is the guy that gives you um, um, the more calls uh, on shipping? Uh, maybe, Chris, we, we start with you. Sure. Um, you know, we don't spend a ton of time with retail investors, so I don't know that I have perspective there. Um, with institutional investors, I mean, you know, the, the, the pool is continuing to get more limited, I think, in nature. Um, you know, we had a crossover a bunch of years ago between energy um, investors and shipping investors. Um, and then as energy was scaled back significantly at many, at many institutions a few years ago, we saw that pool get, I think, even smaller. Energy has come back. I don't know that shipping is necessarily, at least as far as I, I can tell, has come back to the same degree. Um, so I think there still are some, some overlaps, though, between those that we look at, particularly on the hedge fund side. Um, you know, there's very few kind of true dedicated shipping investors these days. Um, I think the numbers feel like they get smaller kind of every year. So ebbs and flows, and obviously, you know, with Tanker, I think there's a bigger crossover with energy currently. And so, you know, it depends on the subsector. There's some, you know, it, there's some interest that kind of, you know, comes and goes. But that's the way that we generally look at it. That, that's sort of the crossover. And it's probably been less so... Um, I'd love to get Dave's perspective on this too, from an industrial side, right? So I cover other industrial end markets and there seems to be much less crossover between your average industrial investor and your average shipping investor. Tate, would you agree with that? Um, uh, I, I, I think the shipping in the last two years, as I, I, I think it's been spectacular what has happened in terms of the dividend, the track record, dividend payouts in the last two years, the repurchases. So I, I, I've, seen some more generalist industrial investors come into my mid to small cap names um, because of those repurchases and dividends. And then another element I think in this cycle is the lower leverage entering this current cycle compared to back in six and 2006 and seven and many other cycles has absolutely benefited the shipping industry in terms of getting um, more retail investors in my opinion too. Ben, uh, Stiefel has a big um, retail distribution network. Um, is retail still uh, still interested in, in this business? Um, who's the the guy that um, you usually uh, uh, have in mind when you're writing your notes? Well, um, yes, I guess is the answer to the first part. I, I pr 
probably spend, in, t in terms of interaction with customers, at least half my time with the retail, our internal retail network. Um, but it's because I probably get five times the income volume, or incoming volume from them, just a lot. Um, they, don't, they usually don't need much, but it's constant. Um, the, uh, uh, as it relates to the institutional base, um, you know, it, it has changed. I mean, there are still people that, you know, we've probably been talking to for 10 years or 15 years, but not many of those. Uh, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of turnover and um, there's a lot of scar tissue. Um, and so that means that uh, there's new faces all the time that are sort of chasing the returns. So, so even in this environment um, where there is more volatility in capital markets, uh, where the stock pickers were supposed to, to sign, uh, you don't see renewed interest in, uh, in shipping? Oh, uh, no, no, no. Uh, um, there is, again, it, it is, uh, at least in my view, it's uh, investor interest is cyclical with the cycles, right? So when there's money to be made, people pay attention. When there's not, again, it's, it's one of those struggles where we've sat up here before and I don't know, take your pick, whether it was tankers or dry bulk or other areas where uh, the order book might have been really low, but the rates were really bad and there wasn't really a clear catalyst in the future and the stocks were trading at a fraction of their NAVs and they were clearly cheap, but it just didn't matter because people didn't care. Uh, the inverse of that is true. When things are working, people care and, and the stocks trade higher and people are calling and it's busy. And I'd say that's, and that's where it is right now, at least in tankers. Right, Tank Tankers has become much more. I mean, still day to day, and talk, you talk to your internal retail network for half the time. I still, my normal conversations with the hedge fund who focuses on tankers. Um, but the hedge fund universe has gotten bigger. But then there's also a lot of generalists and long onlys that have come in uh, looking at tankers who just look at a very big picture. High rates, strong balance sheets, no order book. Right? And that's what's keeping them uh, checked in. And But they're not actively engaged uh, like a normal hedge fund would be. And I do think, generally speaking, there's not as many purists as there used to be. Um, you guys might feel differently, but for me, it used to be there were there were guys who they spent the on the buy side um, an inordinate amount of time on this. Most of the people who I'm talking to are looking to take small positions, speculative positions that won't get them fired in case they're wrong. Is there anything that companies can do in this environment, or is it simply just the nature of the beast here? Any, I don't know, uh, Omar, Ben, anybody? Um, I think companies can just um, continue to provide as much, um, let's say, financial information as possible. Try not to hide anything, I think, is, is most important. Um, I think that that's key. It's just, I'm not necessarily saying you have to give guidance, but uh, more is, is better than less, especially in this environment where there's a lot of new eyes looking at the sector. Um, and the more you, information you give them, the more highly, I would say, valued that is uh, in terms of your, I guess you could say just overall your valuation improves with more, with more information. I mean, I think one thing we always have to address in this space is market cap and liquidity, which, you know, is a very, usually varies between a little bit and not very much at all. And so I think that's the concern that we continue to field from investors. And particularly as you think about the rise of sort of the platform platform hedge funds and, and how much capital they've accumulated over the years, you know, those guys have pretty significant liquidity minimums um, to be able to 
to invest and, and trade in some of these spaces. And I think that, you know, does provide, you know, a degree of a very big and important growing part of the investment community that has a hard time outside of special situations investing sort of broadly in the space. And I think that's something that, you know, we, we definitely feel a lot when we talk to those folks because those are, frankly, our, our, our best and most important clients when we're talking and, and, and we don't get a lot of overlap on the shipping side, I think, because of that. I'm not sure what the answer of, to that is. You know, obviously consolidation could help that. I'm not going to hold my breath and suggest that that's going to happen anytime soon. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a difficult dynamic when it, when it comes to that. Thank you, Chris. Um, and now to the internal question, pure play versus diversified um, uh, shipping companies. So uh, private ship owners, including the sponsor of uh, CPLP, Capital Maritime and Trading, will tell you that diversification in shipping works and to a large extent can address the cyclicality aspect of the business. We have recently seen uh, some public examples of diversified companies such as Navius Maritime Partners and uh, Costa Mares foray into dry bulk. So does the old maxim uh, hold that investors are only interested in pure place? What would make an attractive diversified shipping company? Uh, Tate, maybe we can start with you. Oh, sure, and I'll thank you, and I'll relate it back to our, co our conversation on fleet renewal efforts earlier too. I, I mean, pure plays, I think one advantage for it is, is helps fleet renewal efforts because with pure plays, theoretically, there should, I think, be more S&P sale and purchase activity. Um, on the other side, maybe a diversified shipping company model would be geared to having perhaps more new build vessels, newer ships inside. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case across the diversified companies out there now relative to the pure play, but maybe that will be a sort of bifurcation that will make both models work going forward. But would love to hear what others think. Thank you, Frode. What's your take? Well, I think uh, pure play is still the way to go, but it's an interesting question. Um, I think diversification can work. Have you seen, for, for example, um, DS Norden, which is a Danish dry bulk slash product tanker company. Uh, if you look back, it used to trade like 80% of NAV like 20, for 20 years. Um, and maybe you were bullish dry bulk one year and the, the product tanker leg went the other way um, and vice versa. Uh, but I think what changed was that management basically went for a much higher shareholder return, right? So to start paying out dividends, meaningful. Um, so if you, if you are diversified by nature, you should have more stable cash flow and you should use that to uh, pay dividends as well. So reward shareholders. Um, that's important. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I would, I would add just, I think the diversified is, is, to me makes more sense, but it's more fun when it's a, when it's a pure play, when investors want to play a theme, but it, it takes time for a diversified play to work. You mentioned Navios, you mentioned Costamare, those both started diversification within the past two years. And the beauty of diversification is you can actually take advantage of, uh, of, of different parts of the cycle by having one segment perform better than the other, and you can take that cash flow and invest in a, in a and, and take advantage of, of, of low values, but it takes, multiple years for that thesis to show itself. Um, and it's still early for custom RN obvious, but hopefully in five years, we'll have a better sense of, of whether that made, uh, was a good move or not. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we have um, just a few seconds left. So maybe um, your top pick, um, it's okay if it's not a CPLP, I won't hold it against <laughs> you. Uh, maybe um, starting with Chris. 
Sure, I was going to say CPLP, but I don't cover you guys, so I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't go there. Uh, you got me on that one. Um, I, I think you're an avid. We're just going to go straight with, with tankers, and, and I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of capital to be released to investors in, in the future. There's optionality um, around potential M&A, and, and, so, and we just obviously are, are bulls on the cycle and the rates, and so I think it's a fairly simple story for us. Thank you, Chris. Brother? Well, as I said, we like dry bulk and tankers. Um, when I look at the peer group, it's uh, not much difference in valuation. So I think I would go for a young co company, so to speak, a young fleet uh, and a large market cap, uh, all that's equal. So for in tankers, I would look at Frontline and um, Scorpio tankers. That's two good examples. Thank you, Omar. Uh, I would say uh, Dorian LPG. Tate, you, you, you talk, I'm not sure if that was yours, but you were talking about LPG. Uh, I think Dorian is a, is a gift that keeps on giving, and the LPG sector is not as, as sexy as it was, say, eight years ago, but it's one that just keeps generating a lot of cash and paying it out in dividend. Thank you. Ben? Uh, this always makes somebody feel bad. Um, you know, I, I, again, I, structurally, it's just hard to argue against tankers. Um, and I really feel like you can take your pick um, uh, among almost any of them. But um, just trying to think of something that's different. I guess it would be, it would probably be for me, Navigator. I just, I think you're going to continue to see ethane and ethylene exports out of the U.S. and no win from that. Not a lot of consensus here, uh, Tate. <laughs> uh, yeah, with the market backdrop and hopefully more China imports of iron ore, I'd go with the Cape side, pure Cape size play in the market on the dry bulk side, Synergy, SHIP, and then on liquefied petroleum gas ahead of potential repurchases or dividends, um, I'd go with um, Stealth Gas, G-A-S-S. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, that was, um, I think, a very um, interesting panel, um, and uh, thank you for your uh, recommendations.